0: We are in part two of this little series that we're doing called Priceless. And we're asking ourselves a big question. And especially now that we are, you know, officially on the precipice of the Christmas holidays. If you were like me, you had 5,000 Black Friday ads in your email when you woke up Friday morning, all just tempting us to, you know, just join the, the army of buyers out there. The world tells us to consume, to accumulate, to get more and more and more and do it on credit if necessary just do your part you know keep the economy going and spend money to impress you know you, we we talked about that last week to people please you know really feed that demon y- even if you need to dive down the death spiral of debt and despair doing it but we were saying what if what if that's a lie what if you don't have to do it that way what if in the wise words of admiral akbar it's a trap what if there's a better way if we could live counterculturally As disciples of Jesus? What if we could be people of a kingdom, a different kingdom, a forever kingdom, and resist the urge to buy, 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 right? And instead, what if we chose to buy less, give more, and when we do give, to give out of love and not out of duty, to be more relational? Do you think it's possible to be more relational, more connected in the month of December, to be more present with each other, Instead of just blaming the calendar and the busy schedule, you know, well, I can't, I can't connect. I can't do anything. I'm in too much of a hurry. (coughs) And somehow we, we, we buy into this, even though we know it's going to stress us out, right? It's going to end up making us feel lonelier at, at the same time somehow. Is there a different way? Can we do it differently? It starts off, we mentioned this last week with waking up to the truth that the only thing that really matters is relationship relationship the greatest relationship is the one where the relationship is the reward itself and that's our relationship with god and then living out from that relationship into our relationships with each other we we have this addiction in our culture and it's to to satisfy to try to satisfy all of our desires all of our longings through buying stuff that's our unique addiction here in the Western culture, right? It might be different if we were in the Eastern culture or the Southern hemisphere or something like that. They might have, they might have different temptations that they're after. The one that's us, the one that's ours is, is buying stuff to fill, to fill the hole, going into debt if we need to, to buy more stuff, working ourselves to death to make the money, to buy more stuff. But as Jesus people, we belong to a kingdom culture, a kingdom culture, it's a way of living in relationship with each other. It's based on a love ethic. And, and it reorients the way we do even the little things like when we go into a store, when we step into a shop, or when we're online on Amazon.com, it, it actually affects the decisions we make. And it has radical implications how we live in our Western American culture. But we have to ask the question, do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus? It's a fair question. Do I really want to be a disciple? Do I really want to be a follower of Jesus? Do I really want to be an apprentice of Jesus and let him mentor me, learning his way instead of just following kind of the fallen system around me? And, and I'll give you a, kind of a word of warning here. Uh, in this series, we're taking our instruction. Mostly, uh, we're kind of focusing, zeroing in on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We're seeing what Jesus has to say about this. Uh, t- we want to be mentored by him. We want him to speak to us the truth. And it's, sometimes it's hard truth. You know, when Jesus, when you look at Matthew chapter 6, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it is, it's not really a touchy-feely sermon. Have you ever just read it and you realize, man, Jesus, right? He, he's on fire here. And he speaks things that today, no lie, make some people so uncomfortable That there are pastors that are on record saying, I will not teach out of this. They don't teach the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not exaggerating about that. And I understand, honestly, because I get it. When when I read the Sermon on the Mount, it like smacks me in the face. It's very confrontive. It's like a mirror that does not lie held up in front of me. And it's like an explosion of fireworks, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the way it works for me is... It's like, that, this is how my humanness creeps in. I read the words of Jesus and there's that initial boom. And then what happens after that? You get the little shaka laka 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 You know, on 4th of July, when you walk in, they go boom, shaka laka 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 It does a little crackle, crackle, crackle. And that's kind of the way the words of Jesus do to me. They hit hard and I'm like, oh yeah. But then it sort of dissipates, right? They, they hit me with a punch, but it crackles and dissipates away. And what I've learned so if I really want to be mentored by Jesus, if I, whether I'm you know reading it myself or listening to a sermon or listen to a podcast or read a book or something like that, if I want to be his apprentice, then as soon as I get that boom, that conviction of the Holy Spirit, I I say, I've got to act on this. I gotta do something right now. I need to immediately put like lasting frameworks in place in my life. And I need to get a community around me who will hold me accountable. Because what I've noticed, just to be honest, is those, those words, those booms, they have a limited shelf life for me. Uh, it hits hard, I get that conviction, and then it dissipates. And I start to live like a product of my culture again. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost a daily decision to wake up and decide, today I am going to live for the kingdom. I'm going to live for Christ. And it's why we come back to topics like this. It's why we do this uh, every so often. You know, some of us might be thinking, like, didn't we cover this like two years ago? And that's why we come back, because there's a boom, and there's the shaka, right? And I have to choose to act on it. And I'm trying to get you, while that impressive boom happens, get you to take a step, right? Or it won't do us any good. And we slip back into normal culture. And it's just true. It doesn't make us evil. It just makes us human. Um, You know, as Christians, we are a a peace and a joy movement, right? We are disciples of the Prince of Peace. How how often is Jesus called that in the Bible? The Prince of Peace. We are taught by him to live in peace, not to worry. And if I taught a sermon this morning on worry, you know, it'd be like the boom. And you'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to worry anymore. But man, there's a Monday morning coming. Right? And pretty soon, I find myself slipping back into anxiety and fear and even making decisions based on worry about tomorrow. As, for, as Christians, we're a forgiveness movement, right? We're a reconciliation movement. man, we are told that so many times that we just need to be like forgiveness machines, but I find myself over time starting to hold a grudge against this person or that person. We're a love your enemies movement. And I find myself over time drifting back from some of those fundamentals, you know, that we're to hold to. So we always need to come back to the basics. That's why we come back. We challenge ourselves uh, to, to be boldly honest with our own hypocrisy. This is a verse right here. This stood out to me this week. It always does whenever we come back to a topic like this. In Hebrews 13, he says, keep your eye, keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Man, God is enough for us. God is enough for you. So be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. In fact, let's just say that together. Will you say it with me? Here we go. One, two, three. Be content with what you have. I will be content with what I have. Now, when you say that, what you're you're tapping into is a a very counter-cultural revolution, you know, within the society. You're you're saying that I live in this world, but I'm not of it. This is how the kingdom culture, the culture of Jesus Christ, how it takes a stand within this world to say no to that which would distract us, which would distract us from being part of his kingdom. I will be content with what I have. I will practice contentment. That's that's revolutionary, uh, given the the time and the place that we live in. Uh, The the early church practiced this in radical ways, and we're going to look at that this morning. Let's dive into today's message. Last week we, uh, Jesus challenged us against, if you remember, doing things to be seen. And, you know, sometimes we think, oh, I don't do that. But there's ways that we do that subconsciously. We do things to be seen. We talked about the discipline of secrecy or the discipline of hiddenness that we can practice. That's like an antidote to that. Um, And today, Jesus is going to address something else that we might struggle with. And that is our addiction to making our life all about security and safety and comfort, the addiction to comfort. I want treasure because that will create for me a sense of security. So we're in Matthew chapter six. Let's go there, um, and uh, we'll start in verse 19. This is Jesus. He says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and what does your Bible say?" Rest, someone says rest, yeah. Um, uh, Something I I noticed was interesting, as far as I can tell, the the updated version of the NIV is the only modern English version to use uh, this word vermin. And uh, what's fascinating is that scholars have known for generations that the Greek word here, it means eating. And it's used all through the New Testament. In fact, Jesus uses this word many, many times. And every time he uses it, he's always talking about food that is eaten. In fact, one time he's referring to himself. And he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood. And the word he uses is the same word as here. It's this eating. Um, But at some point long ago, somebody in the English speaking world translated it as rust. And that just kind of stuck. And just through the inertia of Christian tradition. Most translators go with that by now. Rust just feels right. Um, it's a super Bible nerd stuff, I know. It's not, not super important, but it, it is fun to geek out uh, if you're me. Uh, but in the earliest transcripts of this, it's moths and the, the Greek word is brosis. And it's some kind of consumption, some kind of eating, which, you know, when you think about it, rust works, right? Because, that's kind of a consumption, a dissolving of the things that you hold on to. Regardless, uh, the the meaning of the Greek word here is that here on earth, the point is that here on earth, treasure is always fated for consumption, right? For it's a wear and tear that that eats away. He says and where, so don't store up treasures in heaven where moths and vermin and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin or rust, or one translation even says weevils, uh, do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, uh, Jesus' point here is not don't buy yourself anything new. He's not giving a command. Don't buy anything new because it'll just break down, you know, or break. Away, it'll break down. Uh, he's not saying, "Look, uh, sure you can go and buy nice clothes, but you'll just have moth holes in them a, a month from now." Because we would just say, "Well, I know how to guard against that. Right? I buy mothballs or something like that." We would say, "Well, I have a solution. I'll just keep buying new clothes." Uh, and and his point also is not, you know, don't buy anything because you're going to get robbed. So don't buy anything. No, his point is, again, this is Jesus. He's the rabbi. He speaks in these rabbinical ways. His point is focus on what is eternal. Invest your treasure in what's eternal. Don't invest in, in things that have just a, a dead-end destination, right? Because let's face it, you could buy new clothes, and, and you can buy nice things, and you may go your whole life and they never get stolen, right? Right? Uh, They may look good for years and years and years, and then when they they don't look anymore, you can give them away and feel really good about yourself because you gave them to charity, and then you can go buy something else. So when you think about it, we can really easily reason our way out of what Christ is trying to tell us if we don't understand what he's saying. And his point is this, rather than investing in temporal things that have a shelf life, why not invest in things that are eternal? And what is this treasure in heaven? It's relationships. Relationships. As we said last week, everything comes out of relationship. Everything that matters is about relationship. And if it's not about relationship, it really doesn't really matter. Relationships hold all things together. Relate, uh, to relationship, we will return for, for judgment and for fellowship. Relationship is what we are made for. And there is no greater reward than more and more of the love that God has given us, that, the, the love that God is. And so our treasure in heaven is intimacy with, yes, the Almighty, but also it's intimacy with the people that we bring with us. And Jesus says this super clearly in Luke chapter 16 when he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now that's an odd one. Uh, when I was younger, I remember reading this and thinking that is a really weird thing for Jesus to say, right? Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself. Is that like, so I'm like bribing my friendships, right? Like hang out with me and I'll buy you a Coke. What is he, what is he saying? How do I work this out? Again, what Jesus is saying here in his cool Jesus-y way is invest the stuff that you've got into what lasts forever, Invest what you have into what lasts forever. Take the stuff that doesn't last forever. Invest it in the stuff that does last forever, which is relationship. And when you go into eternity, your treasures will be there. The people, the relationships you invested in, they last for eternity. So start investing in those relationships now. It's beautiful. Now, uh, let's go back to Matthew. Next, what does Jesus say? He says in verse 22, "...the eye is the lamp of the body." if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, if you hear that and you go, that's really interesting, but I don't have a sweet clue what that means. You're not alone, okay? You are actually in good company with a lot of commentators out there. Uh, for generations, people have said that this is the most cryptic and difficult to understand passage of Jesus. And we just read it. There it is. And we go, the eye is the la- First of all, the eye is the lamp, right? Like light shines out of our eyes. That doesn't sound right, right? Isn't the eye more like a window that light goes into? How is The key here is reading it in its historical Jewish context, okay, which takes a little bit of digging, but I did the digging hard work for you, so here it is. Because we're not first century Jews living in the ancient, you know, Near East, are we? Right? So we, we have to know, well, what did they mean when they said this? When Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body, he seems to be saying there's something about your gaze. There's something about what you focus on, what you gaze at, that has the ability to to illuminate your life, your focus can actually be the lens that illuminates your life. And he says something really interesting. He says, "If your eye is healthy," and there, that's one translation. Uh, the word there in the Greek means single, as opposed to double. Um, it's the Greek way of saying if you, if, you know, if you don't have double vision, if you have single vision, like I have when I take these off. There's so many more of you now, right? But when I put this on, oh, okay, it's 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 just us. Um, So, if your eyesight is single, uh, the word can also mean simple, uh, which means not complex. So, if if your sight is not complex, if it's not complicated with other things. So, if your eye, what you're focusing on, is singular, clear, not diluted with many distractions, that'll keep you focused, Jesus is saying, and, and light up your entire life. But then he says something interesting. He says, if your eye is unhealthy, the word literally is evil. If your eye is evil there. If you have an evil eye, uh, that's going to bring some serious darkness. Now, what does it mean to have the evil eye? What's fascinating is a lot of cultures use that phrase. Have you ever heard that? Like someone gave me the evil eye. There's a lot of cultures all around the world. It's like all these different languages. They all say that phrase. What's interesting is that in most of them, the evil eye is a look that you give someone to like kind of hex them or something. So like put a curse on somebody, you know, like that person gave me the evil eye, like they willed something something bad on me. In Jewish culture, the same phrase gets used. It's in Deuteronomy, it's in uh, the Proverbs, but the evil eye means something a little different. Within Jewish culture, the evil eye is when you practice covetousness, right? One of the 10 commandments. Uh, when you look at somebody because you want what they have, you're jealous of what they have. And so, from the Jewish perspective, you're not cursing them. The evil eye is a way that you curse yourself. To have the evil eye is to curse yourself with jealousy and envy and covetousness. Because you make yourself frustrated with what you don't have. You fill your soul up with envy and with jealousy. So, Jesus here, if, if we're first century Jews and we're listening to Jesus, what we hear is when your eye is single, it's simple, not double-sided, Cited, It brings light into your life. But when your focus is on envy and jealousy and what other people have, you're cursing yourself and you're filling yourself with darkness. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This translation says money. This is, the, this is the place in the Bible where it uses that word mammon. It's an Aramaic word. One of the Aramaic words that sneaks into the Bible. Um, it has actually a broader meaning than money. It can mean money, but it can also mean everything you own. Basically, all of your stuff, your wealth, your possessions, your property, all the above, anything you own, your mammon is your stuff, your possessions, your property, your wealth. And he says, you cannot. That's very strong language Jesus is using here, right? He's, he's he's not toning it down. You cannot serve God in money. Don't even try it. And he says, and the words he uses here are also kind of shocking for Jesus. He's, he compares this to a master-slave relationship. The word for serve here in the Greek is... It's not a watered-down word, like, you know, you would just, like, I'm I'm working for somebody or, like, a servant here. He's full-on talking about a slave relationship, which I know is, like, super, you know, cringy and problematic. But what he is doing is he is showing the sharp contrast between the bondage that, that money and wealth and stuff can hold over us versus the commitment that we have made as disciples to Jesus, We've made a commitment to God, and we have said that God and God alone deserves our absolute loyalty. The God who loves us unconditionally, he shows nothing but infinite generosity towards us. This God, nevertheless, is unable to share with us. With, he, he will not share us with another master called Money. And so to be a disciple, a real disciple, like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is to give ourselves over to Christ and say, Lord, I am yours. I am yours and yours alone. I give my life to you. Teach me how to live. I don't want to serve. try to serve you and mammon. And then even with all of this, the strong message against you know, letting money and mammon be our, be our mastery, he even goes on to say that money itself is not the evil thing. It's not evil. Money can be a tool, right? Wealth can become a tool if we, if we have our wisdom. And our, our stuff can be our tool. And, and so we, what we do is we bring everything we have with us to help serve our master. The word for master here is, is Lord, that curios to be Lord of our life. We want him to be Lord of our life because you can't have two Lords. Amen. Amen. But when we learn to make Jesus our Lord, not just our Savior, but our Lord, truly allow him to be Lord, the Bible says that there are appropriate uses for our wealth. So this is good news. The New Testament, in fact, mentions that I could find at least three ways you can use your wealth appropriately as citizens of the kingdom of God, and they are to give appropriate care for one's family, to help those who are in need, to support the spread of the gospel. These are three ways, specifically throughout the New Testament, it mentions. There are some scripture references there on the screen. Um, You can look it up later if you want to snap a picture with your phone or something. We won't work through all of these right now, just for time's sake. But I do want to look at one of these examples, and that is, number two, they're helping those who are in need. The early church in, in the New Testament, they lived intentionally, simply so that they could give away lots of money. It's, it's, it's amazing. There were church leaders. There were church people who were just part of the congregations who uh, Paul would refer to, who were business owners, who were successful at what they did. Some of them were laborers. They were all different. They all came to the same, same church, and, uh, but they would live purposely, simply, simply. So they could give away lots of money, and they would especially do this when there were Christians in different parts of the empire uh, who were going through harder times than they were. And so uh, the Apostle Paul would write to these churches and say, "Hey, you know what? The saints back over here in this region—they're uh, having a really hard time. Can y'all gear down how you're living, save up a lot of money, and then give that money away?" There's a passage in Second Corinthians. We've looked at this before. Second um, Corinthians, chapter eight, where he's Paul's doing some fundraising, uh, and he's doing specifically for a Christian community that was experiencing really desperate times. They were poverty, drought, famine, plus persecution. They, they, were, they were going through it all. And so Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church was thought of, uh, we believe, to be, they were pretty well off comparatively to the other churches. So he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's doing some fundraising, for these people who are going through the hard time. And there are these few verses after he's encouraged them to give money. He says this. He says, now our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And first of all, I love the fact that Paul is encouraging them. He, he's telling them to give generously. He's giving them, they're, they're so generous that he has to stop and say, now please don't give so much that you give away everything you have and you become a burden on society, right? And then we gotta like take up an offering for you, right? I, I, I mean, it'd be like me telling you guys, okay, so, you know, we're gonna take up an offering for the Messiah in Kenya and, and now don't give so much that we have to like write the Messiah and ask them to take up an offering next month, right? We just, you know, just, we don't, wanna, we don't wanna do that. That doesn't really solve anything. So Paul says, don't give away everything. I want there to be equality. And wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be lovely if we had that kind of generosity here? That every so often on a Sunday morning, we just have to get up and go, guys, guys, look, again, please don't sell everything, right? Calm down. Keep enough so that you can live. And that's exactly what Paul says to that church. He goes on to say in verse 14, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. So you you have extra. Just give that to them. So that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. If ever the tables are turned, you're going to balance it out. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. It's very practical stuff here. Wow. Okay. Okay. Now, before we, uh, we finish this, I, I, I want to make this super practical like we did last week. Um, first of all, I want to ask you a question. Let's, let's imagine for ourselves that, like, imagine the world just really does just go to hell in a handbasket. And uh, you get dragged before the tribunal and accused of being a disciple of Jesus. And you're standing before court. Would there be enough evidence from your bank account? To use against you? Would they be able to look at your relationship with stuff to finally convict you beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because they would say, look, I mean, it's all right there. Or in that area, do we live just kind of like everybody else, right? Is your Christianity mostly just trying to think the right thoughts? you know, behave in the right ways? Or are you living counterculturally? If If people were doing an audit on your finances, would they come to you and go, dude, (laughs) look, you live really weird. I don't know if you realize how much you're giving away, right? There's so much generosity going on here. It's kind of way out of balance, right? Would they be shocked at that audit? Or if they did an audit on your finances, would they look and go, that's basically how Americans live. So last week, in order to really put our, you know, our faith into action, we started making a simple list of December resolutions. These are December resolutions because, like we said, waiting for New Year's resolutions, waiting for January 1st is too late. The damage is already done on January 1st. So let's make December resolutions. We can start now to become the people that Jesus wants to shape us into. Last week, we looked at these two. Uh, these two resolutions that I'm making. I'm encouraging my friends and family to make. Buying things uh, not to be seen, but simply to live. And practicing generosity not to be seen, uh, but to bless. Whether anybody sees us doing it or not. Out of curiosity, has anybody, has this entered into your your, your mind as you, you know, saw the sales, as you went online, as you walked the stores, stores, is any, is anybody feel like they're, they're starting to put some of this into practice? Yeah. Some, some, maybe. All right. That's okay. Just start this week. All right. Here we go. Here's number three. We're going to add number three to this. I will spend less in order to give more away. That's pretty simple. I'm going to spend less so I can give more away. Now, this might be something, might be a conversation you want to have with a group of people that you exchange presents with. That might be a good good time to get together, you know, and uh, in small group or however you do it, and you you just talk about, hey, what if we exchange less and we give more away? Now, I'm going to tell you, when we read these things, and it was kind of just proven, we hear this stuff and we go, Oh, yeah, absolutely. But unless we get specific, we'll never actually follow through, right? So I encourage you to move yourself to action by writing it down. That's one of the best things you can do is, is just right now on your phone or as soon as you get in the car or whatever, grab a piece of paper, write it down, and then bring it into relationship. Uh, talk to other people about it. Hold yourself accountable. Say, look, I really want to do this. I, I, really wanted, I really want to try... And live a different way than the normal crazy rat race that the whole world lives. I want to live like a kingdom person. Um, For you, it might be making a commitment uh, right now about the ways you can be radically generous in the coming weeks. You know, how much you want to give in that Christmas offering for Jesus coming up on December 10th. Or maybe it's uh, making a budget, an actual budget. For some of you, that would be a really, you know, it would be a big step for you to make a budget about what you're going to spend throughout the month of December on Christmas and what on yourself and on parties and different things that you're going to do. What are ways that I could simplify? I could spend less so I can give more. That's a very kingdom thing to think. We should should be thinking that way. Now I'm going to give you one last warning, okay? This is a warning. There's a very common excuse that we use in order to avoid obeying Jesus, and it is brilliant. It's very effective. If you don't really want to do what Jesus says, remember these seven little words. They will help you to never do what Jesus says. And it is, yeah, but we have to be wise. Right? And, and I bet I don't even have to get you to repeat that after me because I bet that's already, I mean, yes, God, but we have to be wise. Right? We love to say this, and I'm poking fun at myself. We love to say this whenever Jesus challenges us to do something radical. Uh, like, love our enemies, you know, practice nonviolence, bless people who curse us, turn the other cheek, give to those who are in need, who are in need. We, we agree with Jesus in theory, right? Nobody would, is like a, a terrible person in here would go, nope, I don't believe in giving away things. No, we all agree with Jesus in theory, we just don't wanna do it in practice. Right? And so we go, okay, okay, I believe that. It's not that I don't believe that. But we have to be wise. And often what we chalk up to just being wise is just an excuse for being disobedient. We're looking for ways to justify our inaction, our conformity to the world, because that's what comes naturally, I'll admit we're, and we're missing the opportunity, though, to, to have a radical, transforming encounter with Jesus. And he's speaking to us, but we're not listening. And the reason is because we are masters. We are masters. We are, all of us, so amazing at diluting Jesus' words with a soundbite and with those words. But we have to be wise. So let's stop doing that. Let's, let's commit, in fact, to being truly wise you know, wisdom is not in competition with Jesus, right? I just threw that out there. It's not like wisdom is like Jesus' co-pastor. You know, well, we've got to do what Jesus says. We also got to do what wisdom says. You know, so which one? I little of Jesus, little of wisdom. No, no, no. It's Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. And then we, what we do is we use our wisdom to figure out how to follow Jesus, Right? We use the brain he gave us to figure out how to put that into action. And Honestly, I, if you're like me, I love to live in the world of theoreticals. Like, I love that world. I could just live there. But to discover the wonder and joy of living in the applicable and not just the theoretical, it's beautiful. So when Jesus says, do this, we say yes, and we work toward actually doing it. Amen. Well, let's see. I don't know what more needs to be said we'll just let's just let me pray for us today um, that God would give us the strength not to use those creative excuses to shuffle off the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we have a boom encounter with the radical nature of, of Jesus teachings and they are radical they are radical amen will you bow your heads with me Heavenly Father Thank you, Lord. Thank you for, the, for teaching us through Christ, Lord God. And I thank you that you, Lord, you teach me through the body of Christ. You give me mentors and, and friends who, who sharpen me. You call us to disciple one another, Lord God. I thank you for that. And I pray that you would not allow us this morning to wiggle away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That conviction that you bring into our lives. Even the conviction that you bring through our brothers and our sisters who love us and love each other, they want to sharpen one another, Lord God. Father, I ask that we would just embrace this conviction and not not to go away in feeling a little bit guilty, that's not the point, but actually to feel inspired and invested with, with new and fresh vision for the role that we're called to play, Lord God. for specific ways. Lord, minister to us. Give us creativity. Give us specific ways that we can begin to make a tangible difference right now, Lord God. And in turn, experience peace and joy and and excitement and fellowship together that we've never experienced before. Help us to see the ultimate joy and peace that awaits us, Lord God, if we just will leave behind the habits of our culture, reject the gods of this world, and make you And you alone, the Lord of our life. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, will you stand to your feet with me as our prayer partners come forward? They're coming forward. If there's anything that you would like someone to pray with you about today, they would love to pray with you. Anything going on in your life. If you need a healing, you're looking for a financial miracle, Maybe you're hearing this and you're like, I, there's something here that's compelling. I want to be able to live this way. I'm kind of too scared to even take that step. I want to want to live this way. How many of you are like that? Like, I want to want to do that. Come forward and let these guys pray with you. They would love to pray with you and just ask the Holy Spirit to just minister to you and, and give you that courage to follow Jesus, to really follow him in practical ways. If you want to say yes to Jesus, maybe today is like the first time you ever have really said yes to Jesus. They would love to lead you in that prayer as well because they love Jesus and Jesus loves you. So come and let them pray for you. My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May you make his face to shine upon you and pour out his mercy in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you.